0: Welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you with us. We are on Zoom, virtually connected once again. One of these days, we're going to actually be together. And we, we were just talking about We were just talking about doing a, a tour in the Pacific Northwest. So we're working on a tour that would take us, hopefully, to Portland, Seattle, and to Moscow. But it's all just sort of nascent right now. Don't get too excited. We don't have anything specific uh, to tell you, but that's in our minds, we're thinking about it. And Glenn Sunshine is now a free man. And so he can do all kinds of things that he used to used to be unable to do.
1: Almost. <laughs>
0: That's right. So we got grades. Well, like I said, this is a theology podcast. I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm, in the, I'm a pastor. I serve here in the Pacific Northwest. I live in a town, a cool town called Battleground, <laughs> Battleground, Washington. And it's got a kind of feisty feel to it. Uh, it's very unlike the uh, Kind of the stereotypes that people uh, hold in their minds when they think of the Pacific Northwest. This is sort of like the place where your where your veteran, uh, your uncle who fought in you know the Vietnam War, hangs out with his buddies on the street. This is like you know the town where you've got the VFW, you know, and just a bunch of ornery old libertarian dudes. So that's where I live. I live in Battleground. And I'm glad to be glad to be here. But anyway, that, enough, enough about me. We're going to make the rounds here. It's just the three of us today. And today is Tom's day. So why don't you introduce yourself, Glenn, and break the news or to, to all of the folks who don't know yet.
1: Well, my name is Glenn Sunshine. I am a retiring professor from Central Connecticut <laughs> State University. I just had my last class yesterday. As of when we were recording here, I've got exams coming in next week. Um, with any luck, I'll get some laughs out of them. I've had some great books <laughs> over the years. And um, after that, I am done at the university and mm-hmm. moving on to bigger and better things. All right. I'm also a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. I'm supposed to mention that, too.
0: All right. Well, we're glad you did. And Tom, Tom, why don't you uh, introduce yourself and then give us the introduction to the topic of the day? It's going to be a fun one.
2: Okay. i um, Tom Price, uh, systematic theologian and Christian ethicist. I teach both uh, at a variety of places, one of which is Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. And uh, so I am not retiring yet. Uh, in many ways, I haven't even got, <laughs> gotten into a situation into which I need to retire. Um, although I feel retired sometimes. <laughs> yeah, You're looking Project for... Project people- this summer coming up. And actually, now that the summer arises, I've got uh, two books in mind. So we'll, we'll see how that goes. Um, I'll keep announcing it drip by drip as we get closer to what they're going to be about. Um, and uh, I had another point and I forgot what it was. So I am near, nearing retirement in my, my, uh, my memory
1: capacity. Um, so um, what is the topic for today? If I can... Oh, by can... the way... I, Before you go, there's something I should probably also mention. Speaking of books, I just got another contract uh, from uh, Canon Press. All right. uh, For a book, uh, working title Christians Who Changed Their World. It's a series of short bios of different people you've never heard of who've had a big impact on the world.
2: Nice. That's great to hear. Good stuff. And and we have, we, we've we only mentioned it when we've had a few rounds of drinks together, a book idea I think that Canon would like, and uh, maybe we need to talk about it again. We'll both be hilarious, but also informative. But, uh, so you're kind of fading in I'll and out. I'll keep that the... Under, under the wraps until we can kind of, oh, oh, okay. Yeah, you're hopefully, kind of fading. Hopefully not. But anyway, we have another book idea that we talked about in a pub, but we haven't announced what it's about, so... <laughs> So we have a lot of stuff in the works, but anyway, today is something that uh, is a topic that I think is fascinating. Am I coming in okay now? Yeah, you're coming in. You're coming in okay. You
0: you kind of cut out at least for me a couple of times.
2: Okay, all right. I hope that doesn't continue. Am I okay right now? Or okay, all right. So um, so the topic of today um, is going to be um, broad and narrow. Um, in the broad sense, it's going to be talking about um, kind of the history of virtue, um, Christian virtue in particular, um, its significance, its import, its complications, um, but then narrowed down to the something I think that is, is a missing virtue in the modern world, in the contemporary world, which is temperance. And what I mean by temperance is not the temperance. Temperance movement, uh, and so yes. Uh, let so let me drink to so temperance. You, yes, yes, I'm drinking to temperance. You, you can you can surely know that uh, this is uh, this is not what is meant <laughs> in, in our understanding, <laughs> um, but the virtue of temperance, and I'll I'll, I'll unpack what that means. Uh, you know, as we go on with the show. Um, but one of the things I wanted to start with was an interesting article by Ed Fazer. He's kind of a philosophical theologian in, in, in the Catholic tradition, but he wrote uh, he wrote a, a fun article called "Woke Ideology Is a Psychological Disorder." Yeah, it's a great it's
0: a it's a great grabber of a title, and I like him. I like the the American Mind in general. That's where where it's published. Yeah. We should yeah, probably make and, sure we have a link in the in the show notes to it.
2: And, and Ed phaser's fun. Uh, he he and Dave Bentley Hart used to 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 kind of throw back and forth, and it, it's you know being reformed, you know, which I think neither of them like that much. <laughs> um, but on on the op- on the other end, uh, we we can kind of see that both of them. From my perspective as a Reformed thinker, um, both of them are wrestling with two sides of something that we wrestle with ourselves in the Reformed tradition, and I think actually can be held together as well. So it's interesting that in the in the wide branch of Christian history, we keep wrestling with the same issues no matter where, where we are, where we are sitting. I'll explain that a bit later. But anyway, the... The, the article is pretty fun because he, he's, Ed is looking at Plato um, and he's kind of unpacking Plato's idealistic vision of what a, a good human society is and what makes for its deformations and what tends towards the worst deformation, which ends up with tyranny. Um, and, and the reason it's interesting is because it, it really is a, a kind of, um, what you would say, a philosophical reflection on you know um kind of where we are in our own society in many ways you know before you go any further time i think it's
0: important for us to help our people understand that when when plato is referring to psychology he's referring to it in its original sense he's not talking about what we normally associate with psychology today yes so and I, so kind of pl- sort of uh, you know help people see that let me just say a couple of things one is uh most psychology today is kind of a medicalized approach and a kind of uh a kind of mechanistic approach to the operations of the human mind. Yeah. So there's a there's a sense in which, you know, uh you're treated for a psychological disorder in the same way you'd be treated for like, I don't know, a tonsillitis or something. You know, it's something <laughs> yeah. that you know, you're not morally responsible for your psychological state. That's whereas right. whereas this is all about your moral a culpability for your psychological state because psyche is, is the term it's the soul, you know, right. And so how the soul is ordered, uh, is something that we can, uh, take responsibility for. And we actually should, if we're well, (laughs) in other words, well, if you can't, then that's an indication that you're not well psychologically.
2: (laughs) Yes, that's right. And, And another thing is it's an indication that you're not human because that's what the beast can't do. Um, I, I, you know, I, I understand the kind of, um, the kind of polarization that often happens in a lot of contemporary theology between you know, um, a pure Christianity and a, a Greek Greco-Roman uh, paganism. Um, I understand it, but I also reject it because I don't think it's fundamentally Christian. And I also think it's misguided in understanding what Christians do. The early church was not about absorbing pagan ideas, synthesizing them, and then coming up with basically a pagan Christianity. What they were doing is recognizing things that were agreeable within the created order to, to a proper understanding, purifying them, renewing them, and then orienting them towards a fuller Christian vision. And so, what happens is, it, it the early Christians didn't see the need to go get rid of faculty psychology <laughs> because they agreed with most of it. They they saw that most of, it, I mean, a lot of it had had a lot, you know, was was shared. The the view that there is something more than our material natures that are that there is something to our reason, a place for our reason in the balancing of our human natures, so that we we are governed as we as Christians understood it as we biblically reason, we order our loves the right way towards God, love of God first and all things in that relation. And by doing that, we order our affections, our loves, and everything else towards their ultimate end, which is communion with the triune God. So there wasn't the 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 kind of antithesis and oppositionalism um, that we, we oftentimes think of. Uh, when we look at it today, it's just, look, it's all or nothing. It's either you just have this, this you know, pure read, read a text, proof text, this is all you have to deal with versus all, there's all this stuff about the human being that we can't really talk about because, you know, Scripture doesn't talk about it directly, you know? <laughs> well,
0: but there, but, but there are places where in Scripture we do find things that would that are very sort of uh, commensurate. Yes, with, that's with, right. With Plato's vision, so for example, when you know Paul argues that we can in, in Romans chapter one that we can see the unseen through the seen. Yes, and then in and then in Corinthians, where he talks about uh, you know things that are seen or temporal, but unseen things are eternal. These are things that
2: Plato would have raised his hand and said, amen, brother, amen. <laughs> Absolutely right. And in, in the interesting language, I mean, I mean, uh, I remember that Andrew Louth is a, a professor at, at Oxford, one of him, mean, he's a patristics scholar. And one of the things he said is that a lot of people don't realize the new Testament is written with a shared milieu with everything else around it. And so there wasn't this kind of, you know, Uh, Adolf von Harnack notion of one, one spirit tradition versus another in which they're in conflict and one pollutes the other. Um, It's the way, it's the, it's the big vision in which they orient everything. And, you know, so in another way of looking at it is that, you know, the, the whole creation belongs ultimately to God. And so in its fallen state, there's going to be echoes of truth that God providentially and through common grace, to use kind of the reform tradition and the in the Dutch tradition, you know, those things are there, but they need purification, they rene- re- need renewal and reorientation, um, but when the early Christians stumbled upon Plato, they were kind of shocked that he knew some of the things that he knew, and they even said, you know, oh, maybe he bumped up against this in Egypt, or, you know, um, when he went down to study, he bumped up against Something of Moses, to which I think someone sent us a question for Glenn Sunshine to ask the legitimacy of that. So I'll pause for a minute to let Glenn fill in that
1: topic. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the the short answer on that is there is absolutely no evidence to indicate that that occurred. Now the response I got to that is absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. <laughs> but on the other hand, that is sort of the worst version of an argument from silence. I think it's really unlikely. To the extreme that that um, uh, Plato, uh, Herodotus, any of these guys really encountered much in the way of uh, of Israel, um, the law, or anything like that. Having said that, the thing that is that the you know the assumption that they had to have seen this is really a a reflection of a really weak view of common grace. Yeah, Um, the idea that and, and, you know, this is the problem I've got with a lot of guys in the reform camp, you know, that if you if you, you know, uh, like the Vantillian argument that basically, you know, if you are not a believer, there's no way you can understand anything about spiritual things. That's a very weak version of common grace. The strong version of common grace says that, well, actually, Paul meant what he said in Romans one. Yeah you know and that there are things that that a well ordered reason even in the absence of revelation can deduce about the nature of reality.
0: So on that point Glenn are we going to get into a little bit of the of the psychology that Plato uh, lays out in the republic because i think if because my 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 experience with some of the people we're referring to here who have a very weak understanding of common grace Uh, They've never actually read Plato. Mm -hmm. In other words, they've got basically the same mindset that Richard Dawkins has, which is, well, you know, if it's wrong, why read it?
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. (laughs) So Richard Dawkins says.
2: Just tell us what it means, even though you haven't read it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah. Yeah. That's kind
0: of the thing. But but like with Richard Dawkins, when people, uh, you know, challenge him and say, have you ever read any like really, you know, uh, you know, sort of sound Christian theology? You'll say, no. Why should I? It's it's wrong. So, in other words, these people who who uh, just dismiss uh, the Republic without having read it, or who 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 when they do read it are just in the same this frame of mind that I described earlier with the hermeneutica suspicion. There's a Christian version of that. Where all you do is is the only purpose for reading this stuff is to find things that are wrong that yeah. so that you can say, well, there you go. It's completely worthless. Let's just go ahead and not read it at all. But when you like, when you read, when you read uh, The Republic, you get certain things. For example, let me just use this as an example. C.S. Lewis is known for saying, you know, that the, one of the problems that we have is we have men without chests. Mm-hmm. Now you don't know anything about what, what he means. Unless you've read Plato and the Republic, yeah, because that's exactly what the psychology that is laid out in the Republic is describing. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Glenn, (laughs) no, I, I, I I can't. You know, I couldn't agree more with that. And you know, the fact of the matter, you know, it's again, it's what we were talking about with um, with mythology several episodes ago. Yeah, you know, the Tolkien's idea of of redeeming myth. You know that that the myths, the myths express genuine truth, but they need to be purged of their pagan elements and Christianized in order to reach the full flowering of that truth. And it's the same thing. It's the same thing with Plato. It's the same thing with any of these guys. You know, there is right. a lot of value there. There's a lot of truth there. I think common grace extends a lot, lot further than we're willing to give it credit for.
0: So, so why don't we get into a little bit of the what? What? What did Plato say? So. Do you want me to summarize it, Tom, or were you planning to? Well,
2: why don't you, yeah, why don't you summarize it? And I'll kind of build off of that because uh, I, I, you know, it I think it'd be a good way to, to unfold it.
0: So essentially, and this is what Phaser is talking about. Yeah. Uh, you can't have uh, a sound pol- political order unless you have a sound psychology yeah. or anthropology, maybe another way to put it. Yeah. So what, Plato does in the Republic is he lays out all within the framework of the, you know, the, the subject of justice. What is justice? He's, you, you can't really define justice from Plato's perspective unless you have an understanding of what a human being is and then how a society works in a sort of like enlarged sort of version of the of the person. So you get the body politic. So like we see this language in the New Testament, we talk about the body of Christ. You know, when, the, when we talk about the body of Christ in the New Testament, obviously we've got the head, who is Christ, who is the logos, who is the reason of God. Right, yeah, <laughs> right, right, right. So you got the head, and then and then you've got the body, which is which is oriented toward you know the head and directed by the head, and you've got division division of gifts uh, yeah. and, and 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 roles and and offices and so forth. Now with Plato, you've got a tripart. Uh, sort of understanding of the human being. So you've got you know reason at the top. At the bottom you have appetite, and in the middle yeah. you've got virtue uh, or this you know sort of this uh, capacity for for moral action. So uh, when Lewis is referring to men without chest, what you have is a reference to this very tripartite understanding: head, wisdom, chest, virtue stomach appetites so men without chests is a uh uh, 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 implies that these are men without virtue because you need wisdom to direct virtue and virtue to direct the appetites yes and if a person is disordered out of order it's when you know what happens is that the mind and the and the or the head and the chest become the slave of the stomach yeah when that happens and that's by the way, is language that Paul used?
2: <laughs> yes, it, it is, and it, it, it's interesting. And phaser uh, points out that you know what, what Lewis used by "chest" um, was a "psyche" or "spirit." Or "thumos" is is a hard hard to translate word, but it's an impulse to correct injustice. It's in the pursuit of what is honorable and avoidance of what is shameful. It's that which, like you said, takes takes our rational nature and and it's a medium almost in which brings it, brings the appetites into conformity to it and of course early christianity sees the holy spirit as as the governing principle of this for for christians when it starts to renew and um reconfigure the, this notion of virtue um but you know ed phaser gives us great points he, he talks about this thing you talk about you know the the point the chest if you will Um, Suppose a man sees an old woman being mugged and, though fearful for his own safety, nevertheless rushes to her aid out of outrage for what is being done to her. Or suppose he's tempted to sleep with another man's wife but refrains from doing so because of the shame he feels and the thought of it. This would be instances of this virtue or the spirit coming to govern the, 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 the balancing of the two. Um, so the reason tells the man to risk pain in the scent in the first case and ignore pleasure in the second appetite might still overwhelm, it, wh- overwhelm him if it wasn't for the spirit, counterbalancing the emotions associated with justice and honor. So there and is the this, way, this harmonizing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. By the way, this is also the reasoning or the logic that is employed by James in, in his epistle. Yeah. He, this, this is all when he talks about, you know, uh, you ask and you do not receive because you want to spend it upon your lusts.
2: Yes, yes, yes. That's right. And so pneumatology um, it, for Christians begins to, to to replace what would be an insufficient um, pneumos, if you will, or thumos for him, uh, Plato. So for Plato, for Christians... What, what was, uh, you know, wasn't fully defined, um, the early Christians would say, you know, no, you need, you need the genuine work of the spirit here to actually carry this work out and, and, and bridge this gap, if you will. Um, and so, but what this, what this ends up doing um, is, is balancing a person. So in the Christian life, we understand conformity to Christ. I mean, our virtues are accomplished in conformity to Christ. And keeping the, you know, the, the law of Christ, if you will, the virtues of Christ, participating in the virtues of Christ, the fruit of the spirit, however you, you want to talk about it. But it's the spirit that is the agent and principle of it. But as being the agent and principle of it, we still have uh, a, a human correspondence to that, you know, an outworking of it, which which is, you know, is, is consonant with these virtues. Um, and so... Um, but anyway, I'll move back to that. But with Plato, what he sees is this: this this kind of psyche is matched in political orders, and so again, he's he's talking idealization. He's not saying there's any real, genuine instance of this, but there are the, the, in every instance of society there are these elements at work. I mean, that's kind of what what he's up to. And um, one of the things phaser uh, points out in the art, art, you know, in his article he goes um in, in another term for these virtues by the way, is excellences. and excellences are not things that we as human beings have as possessions of ourselves. Um, the early church uh, uh, in christians historically and reformed in particular, especially the early reform, understood these as participatings in the perfections of God. These are the ways in which certain communicable attributes of God become become um, become uh, measurable in our own lives. sanctification,
1: if you will. Right. Um, so but there the isn't Greek, there isn't such a, a discontinuity there. Um, but anyway, the Greek, um, that, the Greek word that's usually translated virtue mm-hmm. is arete, which refers to this idea of excellences. Mm-hmm. So all of the stuff that we've said about virtue in the past, the, the Greek equivalent of the Latin virtus is uh, is arte or excellence. Yes. Yeah. Great. Great point. Um, what, uh, what ends
2: up happening is, uh, in, in, in Phaser's article is he talks about healthy and sick society. So he's unpacking the next part of it. So reason, spirit, and appetite, this tripartite notion of the self, are to be found in all human beings, but each is stronger in some human beings than others. And there are three social classes in Plato's kind of ideal society that you could fall into. And he, he notes that the vast majority of people will fall out into the appetitive. And do, do any of you want to kind of unpack what the appetitive would be?
0: Well, basically, you know, when we think about the stomach, now this doesn't mean that people are kind of out of control or addict or addict, you know, addicted to things, although it could lead to that if yeah. you don't have these other, ver- these other things present or in working in your, in you. But uh, essentially, is you, you know you're kind of just kind of trying to make a living,
2: you know, <laughs> you, you, but you
0: know what I'm saying? So you're you're trying to you know provide for your family. You're you're wanting to enjoy certain uh, sort of creature comforts. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, you know, good beer, for example. You know, that's a <laughs> that's right. So um, crafting
2: good beer, for that matter. <laughs>
0: right, right. So you know, craftsmen, uh, people who work. You can be a virtuous craftsman. You can be a virtuous farmer you can be a virtuous but these are people who are oriented to just sort of like life on the ground I mean they're just trying to get through the day they're, they're working hard uh, but they're not this, they're not sufficient unto themselves in other words the appetites have to be informed by other things uh, and the the way they're informed is what Plato is concerned about but uh, there are also people and you've noted this for whom these other things, spirit, spirited, you know, like, like last week, we we spoke with Nate, uh, spearing. So Nate is obviously the kind of person that Plato had in mind when it talks, when he's referring to the chest,
2: right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: Yep. So yeah. that doesn't mean that people who are, you know, uh, you know, sort of, you know, or, you know, sort of in which wisdom is dominant, don't, have the ability to be spirited That's but it right. just means that and, there, there, there's a kind of pre, there's a kind of preponderance
2: and, and there is an interesting thing because i think christianity starts to break down some of that hierarchy and, and it says i mean this was i think the reformation principle that was that you know you can do this for the glory of god the higher end and yet accomplish the the the, the mm-hmm. appetite of that but yeah. i mean we, yeah. we can kind of get that but yes in plato's categories glenn you had a point
1: yeah, the the way that I would look at this is I would go to the way the medieval society envisioned itself. Yeah. Medieval society said that there were three orders in society. Um, in reverse order, and um, in, in by the time you get to the French Revolution, it's three estates, okay? Yeah. In, in reverse order, um, the third estate or the third order are those who work. And these are the people who are involved in production. Work is understood as production.
2: And this is exactly what uh Plato means by the appetitive class, exactly. the productive class, the farmers, the merchants, the laborers.
1: The, the second estate are those who fight. This is the warrior class that is responsible for protecting society against physical enemies.
2: And for, for Plato, that's the spirited, the that's oriented the spirit. by temperament
1: to honor and justice. <laughs> yeah. Now that now the first estate is where things get a little dicey here. Yeah, The first order or the first estate were those who pray. Okay, And by that, the, in the Middle Ages, that meant the clergy. But I think it's connected. I think in their, their concept, it's connected to what Plato was saying. Yeah. Because in Plato, the philosopher kings who yeah. are ruled by reason. Uh, philosopher is not what we mean today by the word. Uh, today, we think of guys in tweed suits with elbow patches in an ivory tower yeah um, you know what Plato meant and probably a pipe by the way, what what Plato meant was people who actually saw and and in a sense understood the forms or the archetypes that underlie reality. They were this they were the spiritual class, if you will,
2: in in the full sense. They contemplated right. divine things. From Plato's right. understanding,
1: which it, when you think about it that way in a the Christian context of the Middle Ages, that really does sort of align with the clergy. But there yeah. are some significant differences. But in Plato's case, just to mention from Phaser's point, is that they
2: weren't traditionally allowed to own property or marry anything. They weren't allowed to basically be manipulated by the, the appetites. Um, And this is why they were sort of a governing class, because they were supposed to pursue these things for their own sake. Yeah.
0: Yeah, And and we have, you know, people complain all the time about the ulterior motives of the people's, the people who rule us. Yes. We talk about, you know, corruption, but we we can also speak of corruption even amongst intellectuals. You know, when we think about the new class and the bureaucracies and stuff like that, it's very easy to see uh, if you think about it, that even people who are ostensibly serving us, you know, in the pandemic to, uh, you know, protect our health, do get some other benefits.
2: (laughs) Well, and see this, yeah, this is, and this is what's interesting about Plato is he would not have liked that. He would not have considered them being, he would be considered, they would be governing from a, a degenerate form of ruling, and, and you can see why when Christianity started to organize itself in these environments, they understood that priestly class is trying to not be be chargeable by manipulation of power the same way that, you know, a Fauci <laughs> um, can can get all this, you know, can get all this, you know, like I said, I don't know his situation, but how people can benefit from their moralism and yep. their, their spiritual state, so, which...
1: Mm-hmm. So what you're telling me is that when Boniface the eighth declared a crusade against his family, a rival family, <laughs> that was an abuse of power. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So,
0: so now we could challenge Plato on the yeah. measures that he took to That's try right. to keep uh, the, the, the philosopher class uh, pure and uncorrupt. Yeah. But, but his point was, yeah, that people can uh, do things for the wrong reasons, and when you do something for the wrong reason, it actually corrupts not just you, but your w- way of thinking. Yeah. So, in order to keep thinking clear, be, you need to make sure that you recuse yourself from yeah. you know uh, from a from making a, a judgment uh, on something that you would benefit from if it were you know, sort of decided to be, you know, if the, if the judgment works out in a particular way. Yes. So I, I think that, you know, related to this is the idea of a philosopher, and you noted this, Tom, is that, you know, today we have this image that Glenn described of someone who's kind of out of touch with reality. And uh, the, the challenge is how do you sort of precinct, pres, yourself from the uh, influences that could corrupt judgment Uh, but at the same time, stay in touch with reality uh, to the degree that you need to be in touch with reality so so that you have a full appreciation for what's going on around you. Um, Philosophers today uh, don't even try to do that. I mean, uh, we're in a very bad way right now in our civilization. And one of the great things about the Republic, and this is what Phaser's trying to bring to Mm -hmm. the surface, is is that Plato if you read plato if I mean if you read particularly his treatments uh, of democracy which he did not consider a good thing mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> this
0: That's is one of the right. things that shocked.
2: it leads right into tyranny we'll we'll get to that
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah but but if if you if you read him it's like he just read the new york times this morning like so yes. so this is so relevant when you read yeah. the republic
2: <laughs> it is
0: you're like, you know, and then Phaser says it. Did he get into a time machine? Did he know exactly yeah, yeah. what we're doing? Well, the reason why he could say the things he did and, and be relevant to us today is, is, is because reality, you know, truth is not, uh, you know, can, in, so contextualized yeah. that every moment in time is sort of its world unto itself. There are permanent things. Yes. So Plato was able to apprehend certain things that were eternally the case.
2: Yeah, yeah. This is what attracted early Christians to what he was up to, even though they knew he needed to be renewed.
1: Right. Mythologized. Um, Glenn, you were saying something. Yeah, human nature is what it is. And one of the things that I try to teach when I'm doing History of Worldview or the impact of Worldview on History Is that any worldview when it's left, when it's dominant for long enough, will inevitably lead to its logical or, in many cases, illogical conclusions. (laughs) It will go where it's going to go. And Plato, this is what this is the genius of C.S. Lewis or Plato or any number of these other people who seem just amazingly prescient. What they can do is that they look at the implications of a particular set of beliefs or a particular set of priorities or whatever, and they can extrapolate out to where it will lead if it's followed through consistently. That's all that they're doing. And yeah. because of the constancy of human nature, this works really well. Now I say that's all they were doing. Um, very few of us have the ability to really think things through that clearly. So I'm not, I'm not sort of minimizing the, 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 The brilliance of what they were actually what they actually achieved, but the 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 process is really remarkably simple. Look at what the implications are, extrapolate it out, and talk about that. Yeah, good.
2: Yeah, and and, you know, and and I think what you see is, I mean, Oliver Donovan said it a very different way, but a, a very shared point. He says the order of things that God has made is simply there. You know, um, it's objective and mankind has a place within it. You know, Um, Christian ethics has an objective reference because it is concerned with man's life in an objective, you know, um, in, in accordance with this order. The summons to live in it is addressed to all mankind because the good news that we may live in it is addressed to everyone. The Christian moral judgment in principle addresses every man not just Christian man, it addresses every man, and so his point is, is he says, Plato, Aristotle, and the Stoics, which treated ethics in close correlation to metaphysics, um, he goes, this is because it's the way the universe is, you know, what the reality is determines how man ought to behave himself within it, you know, and so, Plato sees this stuff and he may not have it from the revelatory end that the fullness of Christ has but he sees a lot of things and so when 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 we get into that he, he his sense of analysis is very rich and so Christianity it doesn't have to come into opposition to the you know the kind of rich substance of it it actually is able to to run with much of it because it doesn't see it in conflict with what the created order manifests about itself. Now, something about Plato. He's an essentialist. He's someone who believes there is a real essence, there are real natures to things. These are not autonomous natures, contraventile. These are grounded in the the eternal reality that has given them a source and is their ultimate end. And so, because of this. Um, they, they, they are discernible. You can discern certain things and you can trace them back to their, their prior spiritual fullness to make sense of them, that's the measure. And so, so what is interesting about Plato is he has a spiritual measure. This is contra to much of, of, of even the current evangelical world that has a materialist um, measure, um, that has a historicist materialist measure. Um, true historic. I mean, if you want to talk about the providence, God's providence, it's, it has a spiritual measure first. So Plato was was um, had resources from the echo of creation um, that puzzled early Christians so much that they thought it had to go back to Moses. It was that profound. <laughs> um, so you can be, you know, maybe John Frame and say, you know what, that's just paganism. Throw it out the door. Or you could actually say, you know what? Wait a minute. Maybe there is something here that uh, has to be processed through a fuller, richer Christian vision, and you can actually see there's something going on here. But let me go where that goes, and maybe we'll we'll see. So where Plato goes is he he, he kind of orders this ideal society, and this is a mental exercise, or it's what you would call a spiritual exercise, if you will. It's it's contemplating where does this go if you you match these different. Imbalances in the human being with with the social form they take, and um, and he talks about sort of what is the ideal society in which people live communally um, together in the right kind of balancing of things, um, and and so he talks about sort of the the ultimate. He he has a hierarchy going on. His the philosopher kings kind of govern the whole, but the philosopher kings are not a, a socialist elitism you know, in which everyone, you know, kind of materialistically can benefit, no one else does. And he often talks about them that live communally in their forbidden spouses, families, and private property. Again, that's not socialism. Um, it's actually so that they are not manipulated by the temptations of typical power to to get a lot of advantage. Again, Christianity will reject that that view of leadership, but in the end, it still will affirm that we need to be governed by something that that, that doesn't compromise when we lead our attraction and temptation to, to, to profit and benefit, right? I mean, anyone with power, let's just admit it from a Christian understanding, has the, the extreme temptations to use that to allow ourselves to manipulate situations for our own self-advantage and sins, you know? And so... Uh, Plato was smart enough to see and discern, um, through common grace, um, that there was something there, but what was very problematic for him was egalitarianism. He said that of the guardian classes, which was the military, uh, you know, imposed only on a few because, you know, few were capable of those virtues, you know, the honor virtues, the discipline for, for being able to, to, uh, you know, basically rule through, through, uh, you know limiting violence um he he would talk about that there are certain temptations that can grow in each of these classes that bring it to a degradation of society um the guardians is what he called sort of this military class and he said oftentimes the guardians want to take over that philosopher kings the philosopher kings in principle would be the spiritual people who who pursued truth and, and beauty and, and God for their own sake, right? Um, now, again, Christianity will break this hierarchy down. They'll say that you can, as a carpenter, pursue God for God's own glory and do your craft for it, right? But in this, in, in Plato's vision, you have a certain order of people that their soul, it's kind of like the monastic life, their sole purpose is to pursue God for God's own sake, right? I was, so the, I, yeah, I would say
0: Tom that I think that the critical thing here uh to sort of note is that in Plato uh there has to be kind of a hierarchy within the in the society. Yeah, uh if there's going to be a hierarchy of values. Mm-hmm. So what I what I'm hearing uh you know the reformers say is that there can be a hierarchy of values. Yeah. And such, and, and 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 that hierarchy of values can be recognized by the by the cobbler, yeah. And because of that, the cobbler uh, wants his shoes to be as well made as possible for yeah. the glory of God. That's the highest value is the glory of God, right? Yeah. And then other values, of course, uh, you know, follow from that. You know, seek first the kingdom, and these other things will be added to you as well. So the other yeah. values would be like you know, being able to provide for your family. You know, being able to enjoy a comfortable shoe. <laughs> yeah,
2: no, that, that's right. And so, reason, which is very highly valued from all of early Christianity, is such that it governs the rest of the appetites. But reason here is not autonomous. This is not Ventilian, Neo Kantian kind of stuff. Reason here is is something that is is a. a, a A comportment to being made in the image of God. It's grounded in God and oriented to God. And so because of that, but it governs the rest. So when it's it's ordered the right way from its source and to its end, God, right, the triune God, communion with the triune God in Christ, it's sanctified through Christ's work in the spirit. It is able to actually harmonize the loves the right way so that when we work on a shoe, we're not doing it in such a way that we are not forming it towards a perfection that was unattainable apart from that you know yeah well
0: when paul says you have the mind of christ yeah right right he's yeah. not saying that only a few of you that's have right. the mind of christ he's saying that you know we all have the mind of christ as believers we have access to the to the divine mind that's right as which was a, which is on one hand radically egalitarian but on yeah. the other hand radically hierarchical yes so this, and and what, it's
2: getting that balance. I don't even think we we as Christians have gotten the balance right yet. I think we're still pursuing that balance. <laughs> but this is but this is what, yeah. of
0: course, uh, you know, we can say how one of the ways we can say that Plato has fallen short. He sees one thing. He sees the hierarchy. Yes. But he fails to recognize the divinity or the uh, the image of God and man.
1: Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. One of the things that I thought was particularly interesting as I was working through this uh, the article. Um, And it's been longer than I'd like to admit since I've looked at the Republic. And um, (laughs) uh, frankly, at the time I did it, I didn't really get the significance of what I was reading. But um, one of the things I found really interesting is this discussion of how civilizations degenerate. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So when the and, and, you know, the old saying fish rot from the head. Yeah. uh what what ends up happening is for various reasons the the guardian class ends up stepping in yeah. and rather than reason being the governing principle, now it's honor or yeah. glory or yes. something like that yeah. that in turn tends then to break down to greed. They start working towards self you know self-aggrandizement through through greed and, and glory and conspicuous consumption, all those kinds of things which moves you down into the um, the people ruled by the appetite. Yeah. And then once you get there, it, it progresses step by step by step until you get to near anarchy, uh, where people are indulging in all kinds of sexual license and a variety of other things. He's really very big on things that are current in our culture. And uh, then that is ultimately going to break down with the rise of tyranny. Um, yeah. Both because of the need to restore order into the chaotic society that you produce through this degeneration, but also because it's sort of dictated by the logic of the the trends themselves. That when someone who is sufficiently anarchistic has the will and the skill to enforce their views, that's how you end up in tyranny. Yeah, I, I think that's
2: one of the richest parts of the article, too. I, I was really impressed with that. Yeah, it's one of the things he says is sort of, you know, he says, okay, let's move from the, the psychology to the kind of the, the, the kind of deformations of government. He, tamar- oligarchy, uh, democracy, very low on the scale, and then and then uh, tyranny. And, of course, he says, democracy is the rule of the spirited part of the psyche in which honor displaces wisdom. So this is, this is already moved down. I mean, if you think of it in Christ, in the Christian vision, it's a move away from pursuing God's glory for its own sake, towards pursuing God's glory for for a, a certain kind of thing, uh, you know, something that starts to give a, a very, this temporal, highest order, significance. Um,
0: well, I, I think we see it all the time. Yeah, you know, it's, not, it's not hard to envision. You Sometimes you'll have people who are kind of uh, pi- pious braggarts, if you know what yeah. I mean. They're, they're sort of like... Uh, They're well, this is what Jesus was getting at in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Where you've got people (laughs) who are fasting, you know, and sort of you know, sort of uh, looking very, very sorrowful and public so that they can be praised for their their, uh, piety, right? That's right. They're not seeking God for his own sake. What they're actually seeking is public approval. And Jesus says, Well, you got what you wanted. Why do you want anything else?
1: Yeah.
2: And so and so in Plato's mind he's like, well, okay, your appetites are in check. <laughs> you know, you know, it's sort of a Jesus okay, your appetites are in check. You get that out of it. But uh but in the Timocratic society, but um you know, but out of honor rather than regard for reason or wisdom or, but I, or but the I higher. Think, but this
0: is where I think Plato and Jesus would have been f- completely on the same page. Yes. Because yeah. they they would they would both agree that the highest uh, th- value now plato obviously didn't understand the logos as a person
2: that's right the sumum bonum was 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 he he did not know the trinity let's, that's right uh, let's be clear for those people out there he did not know the trinity and because of that everything else is problematic but
0: <laughs> but yeah but he's he still recognized that 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 wisdom is at the top and yeah. if you're if you're if you just want to look wise without actually being wise yes, you're looking for the honor that's a, that should be a, uh, you know only accorded to the, two, the to those who really don't care whether or not they get honor <laughs> yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah, yeah. So, that's, mm-hmm. yeah so then the same thing is with you know fasting or prayer if you're looking for um if you're looking for the social benefit of honor rather than seeking god for his own sake through prayer and fasting then you know you're not actually seeking god you're not actually seeking the sumum bonum
1: And by the way, the term democracy comes from the Greek word for honor, right? So, and and, you
2: notice here, this is sort of what uh, Charles Taylor's on too when he's talking about a culture of recognition. You know, everyone wants this kind of honor without character, so they want to be honored for whatever self-definition they they you know kind of recognize. And there is this kind of you know um, a democratic disposition. In, in the current climate, you know, yeah, we call it um, virtue signaling. That's right, <laughs> that's right. Um, but it is interesting that you haven't eliminated it. You know, it's it, there is it's not honor in the old sense of the word. Maybe a, a, a valor that comes with a, a kind of set of um, you know, say, skills or virtues that you've embodied. It's more that that, but you 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 think simply intrinsically by declaration that you are a person of of X, Y, and Z, that you need to have been given granted honor. And now, in a sense, there there is something legitimate that in the the image of God, but it's not in the prideful sense that I think a lot of this is disposed. You know, the prideful sense is, you know, I demand honor, you know, um, and the humility sense is that we're all made in the image of God and therefore we're image bearers and therefore there is a a certain, there is a certain, Way in which we have to orient ourselves towards that image that re- always affirms it, and I, I think Christianity, you know, has always been in its better dispositions affirmative of that kind of thing. Yeah, um, and I think that is something that I don't think you find in Plato.
0: Yeah, within the New Testament, of course, uh, what we are referring to is self righteousness. So yes, you know, so democracy. A timorous person is a person who is seeking honor, public praise. Um, now within a framework, that's not uh, oriented toward the one true God, but maybe towards some, uh, some, something else like just, you know, heroism or whatever, but within, within, um, you know, sort of the, 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 the world of, of, of Judea in the, in the first century, yeah, you know, it's the same thing, you know, you, you want you want praise. And yeah. so, so what you what we should do is you are, are seeking what should be given to, only to God, yeah. Uh, but you're seeking it for yourself. That's self-righteousness.
2: And that creates what Phazer says following, this is a highly competitiveness, which makes one weak, therefore makes the, the kind of uh, democratic level, um, disposed almost to leading to oligarchy, um, because he goes, for this reason, he goes, um, democratic man's excessive regard for honor makes him so highly competitive and because of this Plato seems to think this leads him eventually to an unduly interested in money as a surrogate for uh, martial accomplishment in this way democracies tend towards oligarchy and then we're seeing oligarchy all around us is the mm-hmm. another uh, is the first of the three de- de- degenerate regimes in which comes progressively to dominate individual society, but it is the least bad of them. Oligarchy basically, um, um, thus take, you know, the appetites start to take the upper hand over reason and spirit. Um, and it starts to pursue basically uh, money for its own sake. I mean, that's one of the things um, that you see about it. I mean, I think his way of putting it is the democratic ideals of honor encourage, courage give way, but they're replaced by bourgeois virtues like thrift, hard work, and respectability. But these are all done
1: not for the glory of God, but for money and, and catering to our baser desires. Now, if, if we can hold off one second, I want to back up to the democratic thing before we get into okay. the oligarchy. The thing that I'm struck by with this is viewing it from a Christian perspective. The, there's nothing wrong with the idea of pursuing um, uh, honor and things like that. I mean, you know, Paul right. talks about this in Romans 2. The problem with it fundamentally is that when you're pursuing honor in this way, you're ultimately looking for your affirmation from other people. That's yeah. really what this whole thing is about, that you want other people to recognize how great you are. Yeah. Yeah. And, we, and we see that of course,
0: in Homeric literature, where mm-hmm. you know it's all about you know uh, getting honor. Uh, you, you, and what you're wanting is is glory. you know honor mm-hmm. and glory are very, I think this is mm-hmm. a, this would be a, an interesting thing to sort of reflect on at the end of the show because there is there's significant overlap between the you know the, the, these things. Um, so at what point do you go too far? In your pursuit yeah. of honor, and become mm-hmm. a kind of uh, theft. It becomes a kind of theft when you're trying to steal the the regard, the glory of God. You know, you know, sort of, a, you know, mm-hmm. to accord it to yourself. Yeah. You know, one of the things I just want to say in passing, and we're, we're kind of getting to a point where we start. Unfortunately, we probably should start wrapping this up a little bit. Maybe we should do a second show on this. Yeah, show. maybe
2: <laughs> we can. I mean, we don't have to do it next time. We can do it another time. Well, it,
0: but it's really good. One of the things that you know I think about is that historically in the United States, you know, uh, you know, families that we would refer to as is privileged today. That's a pejorative mm-hmm. term, but. you know, the past has just basically been a statement of fact, (laughs) you know, the idea that to whom much is given as much is required, there was a, you know, there was an understanding, uh, that, uh, among, uh, you know, sort of leading families, there should be martial virtue, uh, and there should be martial virtue. And one of the ways you, you know, sort of encourage that is by, uh, you know, requiring of your, of your sons, some kind of, uh, you know, uh, engagement in, you know, or service in the, the, you know, sort of the uh, defense of their country. So oftentimes, you know, in the past, like we we look at, you know, Britain, um, you know, leading families, it was expected that the sons would become officers in the military, right? At least for a period of time of their lives, or maybe there would be one who was sort of designated as being, you know, okay, he's the one who's going to serve in this capacity. Um, but but there was a there was a sense of responsibility for that. When I was at Air Force Academy years ago, and our son Caleb was, was looking for a college and he was recruited by Air Force, um, we we toured Air Force Academy and they had this mm-hmm. map of the United States. Mm-hmm. And on the map, they had a pin. Every class in Air Force Academy, there are a thousand cadets. So freshmen, sophomores, you know, junior, senior, each has a thousand. And so The freshman class, this is a wall-sized, it's this is in the Barry Goldwater Welcome Center. (laughs) (laughs) The Barry Goldwater Welcome Center at Air Force Academy. They've got this massive wall-sized map, and there's a pin that locates where every uh cadet in the freshman class is from. Now, how many do you think uh, how many pins were in the six states of New England when I (laughs) would visit? total of six, oh, all, no. all six, uh, states. So there was like one per state. There might've been like two from Maine, zero from Massachusetts. <laughs> you get my point. <laughs> uh, and New York city, uh, you know, uh, the New York city metro area, 14 million people. How many pins? One. Where do you think the pins were? Texas, Oklahoma, Alabama, they were, located largely in the Southern states. There were some in California and stuff like that, but I was ashamed. Yeah. I was ashamed that the governing class of our country uh, sees no, has no skin in the game when it comes to the military.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And given the direction, the thing, the the reports I'm getting about the direction the military is taking right now, Uh um, it shows because they are much more interested in creating their vision of what a proper society ought to look like, which has nothing to do with the way things really are in the real world, um, that they're setting up policies that are just gonna simply get a lot of people killed. Yeah. Uh, And
0: how many people have to die before we get kind of, because we all know that the capacity for these people on the left to sort of ignore reality is remarkable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They can go for a long, long time before they actually deal with the realities on the ground.
2: Yeah. yeah. Well, that's it. I mean, it's one of the things, you know, the, the potentialities built into realities, the ability to prolong a long engagement with it. <laughs> you know? I mean, I mean, that's part of God's providence and patience, but it's also part of, you know, I think, the you know, the judgment and and uh, its consequences. It, it is, It's terrible. Um, to think of of that. And um, one of the things I think, I mean, maybe something I should mention before we go. And yeah, maybe I don't know how we want to pick up with it, but I think where he talks about kind of the, 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 there's this next stages. So you move from oligarchy to democracy, then to tyranny. And I think Prince has already kind of said in advance that tyranny is not simply just about having to give um, some kind of container to, to, to limit the excesses of of democracy run wild, but it also has something sinister in it um, that that actually leads to a kind of affirmation of that. And so um, one of the things he says, he said, the first thing to keep in mind in the order to understand Plato's analysis of democracy is that he's not concerned with procedural matters. He's not talking about what we think of as sort of democracy, everybody voting, getting their own say. Um, he's he cares about is the character type that dominates that society. So he's more akin to Martin Luther King, Jr. than he is, you know, to to what people are talking about. But in terms of procedural matters, um, so by democracy, what Plato has in mind is is you know this notion of a libertarian egalitarian society, which every individual is free to do what he likes, you know. And and sadly, I think a lot of Christians think that's what freedom means. Um, Not freedom to truthfully enact what you are as a creature, but to do whatever it is you like. Um, Bourgeois uh, restraints on appetite disappear so that desires are checked only by the competing desires rather than by reason, spirit, or any, or even the oligarchs' middle class stolidity. Democracy, as Plato describes, is basically what American society has become in the 21st century, so much so. That reading Plato on democracy makes one wonder whether he had access to a time machine.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Maybe what we could do is in the next show we could kind of, uh, you know, actually take some, you know, lift some quotes from Plato and say, "Isn't that what we're reading about every day?" But you know, know, as we wrap up, you know, here's what I propose. I propose we do like a two-part series on temperance. Okay. So, so this could be be part Mm -hmm. one. But before we go, before we go, Tom, could you give us, you know, a quick. Uh, you know, definition of temperance to sort of serve as a bridge for us into the next show?
1: Yeah, I
2: mean, temperance in the way Christians typically understood. I mean, if you, you just want to go directly to biblical language, it's, it's the way of putting off the old and putting on the new. It, it's a way of, of kind of withholding certain things so that our appetites, which are hungry for fulfillment, don't go in the wrong direction. And so temperance is a way of tempering those appetites so that they don't go in the sinful directions, but they orient themselves to the good. And so temperance is not the temperance movement, and you know, which is legalistic, which doesn't understand redemption and, and, and being filled with the spirit and the life of the spirit, but just sets a set of rules with don't do this, do this. Um, temperance in, in the fuller vision, um, in continuity with but renewing and restoring, tem, you know, temperance as it's been classically understood, is in a biblical sense um, the 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 way in which we are able to flourish because we are not dominated by our sin state, our our appetites gone the wrong way. I mean, one of the things that drove me to the the whole topic was. I mean, you started to notice, I mean, I'm seeing fights at airports over something. I mean, chicken wings don't get delivered in the right time and people break out in a restaurant and, and beating each other up. I mean, this is a place in which your appetite for food has so dominated you that you're not governed by anything higher than your appetite to where you're killing someone over chicken wings. You know, I mean, and this is not, you know, I'd, I'd like to laugh and say this is is peculiar here or there. No, but this is becoming something governing in our society where people completely unhinge and are uh, unguided by anything higher than their mere lower appetites, their sin drives. Yeah, their gods
0: mm -hmm. gods are their stomach.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. And and interestingly, it, it ends up tying back to the issue of honor that if you question them in any way, you're dissing them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's,
0: yeah. Right.
1: that's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So essentially, what we what we what we have, I would say, with with a wide range of things that um, we associate with the left today, in particular, and that's one of the things that, in you know, a phase, getting into, is that um, uh, while there are you know fascist expressions of these of these problems, uh, this uh, this sort of tendency most often finds itself kind of at the end of the process on the left. Yeah. And um, I think maybe that'd be a good place to kind of start the next show. Okay. Um, but I, I, I think that this idea, you know, I, you know, when we think about the fruit of the spirit, yeah. right. We start up with love and we end with self-control. Now, yeah. the, the thing with, with that is that we have a tendency to think of this as sort of like a, a list that is uh, in order of importance. Right? (laughs) So like, it's like self-control is somehow like, you know, at the bottom of the barrel. But I think that if you think more chiastically, if you think about it as sort of like a sandwich, you know, a sandwich doesn't hold together until you unless you have a top and a bottom, right? And so love is the top, sure. But self-control is if you don't have self control, you can't have love. You can't yeah. have joy. You can't have peace. You can't have gentleness. You can't have any of that other stuff. If you don't have self control. So self control, what I would say is sort of the sort of the mirror vision of love.
2: Yeah. You
0: know, it's oriented toward love in a supportive sense, and makes love actually uh, real and sort of gets it on the ground. Yeah. And I think uh, until you can, this is where I think temperance comes in. I think because what we're talking about here when we talk about self control is temperance. Is if you can't have temperance sort of uh to or to order your life, then you know you eventually do end up with people killing each other over chickens.
2: You know, yeah. Kind of and and I think that I mean, one of the things Christianity brings to that whole the virtue conversation is eschatology. It's fulfillment of ends. It's it's the higher the highest end that we are. And that that therefore can inform us in, in a way to take take those virtues and orient them the right way. And, and so what that means is because Christ is, em, embodies the fulfillment of, of humanity and in his resurrected life becomes something we can participate in, um, therefore we can orient ourselves away from those. You know, the, I mean, that's the whole point of being heavenly mind is putting off the old, putting on the new, being able to, to embody kingdom ethics in a way in which chastity is not something about losing out on one's freedom but is actually fulfilling one's nature if one is single and 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 not not yet oriented towards um the fulfillment their fulfillment of that particular part of their creatureliness in marriage so i mean there there's a there's a huge amount of insight that christianity brings to this conversation
0: oh yeah and eschatology is huge because you know play <laughs> plato socrates those guys essentially were you know, circular in their thinking. They That's just, right. Yeah. You know, and so they, they couldn't really get uh, there. Yeah. Yeah, definitely not. Anyway, we should wrap up. Anything you want to say in conclusion, Glenn? Um, Looking forward to next conversation. All right. All right, right. Well, same here. Anything you want to say as we conclude, Tom?
2: Nah, I think I said enough.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, thank you for listening to the, to the Theology Podcast. We really do appreciate your support and interest in what we do. Uh, one of the things i just like to say as we conclude is uh as we endeavor to address the thinking of a wide range of people um, when we address a particular subject or a particular argument what we're and, and we say something positive about about the person, that doesn't mean we endorse everything that pr- person ever said. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I, I, some, I, 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 think that some people think that's the way it works. Yeah, you,
2: that's, you? Yeah, I think I, I've noticed <laughs> that too. You know, I, I, I have, I've quoted, uh, you know, Carl Bart, for example. They think, oh, you quote Bart, therefore you're a and therefore. Right, right. We had the same thing with
0: Heiser. And probably some people will say the same thing about us with Plato. No, there are many ways we disagree with Heiser. We disagree with Plato. We disagree with Bart. You know, just because we say something positive about anybody doesn't mean we endorse everything that they've ever said or done. Except
2: Jesus. That's right.
0: Except the Lord.
2: Yeah. Who who is motto. anyone save Christ Jesus that's our motto. <laughs> that's right. That's right.
0: So so with that thought in mind, you know, before you send another email to us, <laughs> keep that in your mind as you write. Anyway, thank you very much for listening to the Theology podcast.
2: Bye-bye.